Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're still in John chapter 1. Um, and as you're turning there, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand and one of the elders or uh, the ushers will bring a Bible to you. If anybody needs a Bible this morning, please turn there. And again, John chapter 1. We've come as far, really, as verse 13 here. Um, I mean, such beautiful theology. Again, the book and the Gospel of John, 90% unique compared to the other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you didn't get an outline that we handed out a couple weeks ago, I encourage you to pick it up on the back table there where the Bibles are and or uh, certainly in the lobby that way. But our attention is going to continue to build on, and now God has already established uh, through John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the work that God did through his son, Jesus Christ, specifically that he was eternal, co-heir in that way. Um, all things were created through him. He described in the beginning, Genesis, going even back there. He's saying even before Genesis, before the world, before the earth, going back to eternality. And then he describes him as this light and the light that turns around and casts out the darkness. The darkness can't even comprehend it, as it says. And then we read about John the Baptist, this forerunner that would come before him. And it says this man came for a witness, you know. And when you really start to think about what's involved in that witness, John the Baptist's ministry was really 18 months. Yes, there was times where he's out in the wilderness and he was drawing men through baptism, women like that unto repentance. It wasn't a baptism as we would acknowledge baptism in the Christian faith, of the, acknowledging the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all things being made new. That's why Christians are baptized. It's a profession of faith because of an inward transformation that God has done. The Jewish baptism that you would see here were done typically with the proselytes, those that were converting to Judaism. But John had done something very unique, and he had called them out and said, look, all of you, it doesn't matter that your father is Abraham, all of us need to be baptized because baptism, and his baptism was the idea of repentance, the idea of turning away from sin. And so he was calling their, uh, drawing their attention to the fact that they needed a savior. And that is the, the large and significant difference that we see um, in John's baptism here. And it was always an attempt to draw us into the fact that we need Jesus Christ. And from there we go and we learn that he, he tells us in verse 13, who were born not of blood, not, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He explains here in this amazing theology that it's all about being born again of the Spirit. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in John chapter 3, but he brings us to this point of understanding. Now the attention is going to be turned towards the incarnation. What God, what happened? I mean, you think about how supernatural this God, who is spirit, is going to be made flesh and dwell among us. That was what Emmanuel meant. And so let's bow our heads. We're going to pray here this morning, and then we'll go line by line. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your holy name. Lord, we pray you anoint your word. We thank you for the men. Lord, for their faithful service, we thank you for the men that are stepping up and serving according to your, uh, your heart, Lord, your spirit. And Lord, as we all gather here this week, this day, we pray you'd speak, Lord, mightily to our hearts. That you'd magnify yourself, Lord. You'd enlarge our hearts. Lord, we desire more of you and less of us. And uh, Lord, it is it's so amazing to study these scriptures, God to study your character, your love, 
And to think that, Lord, you determined to do all these things before the very foundation of the world, before it was even created. You desired love, you desired truth, and you desired reconciliation. God, thank you for that. Lord, even even just us gathering here this morning as we're praying, thank you seems such, it doesn't seem enough, Lord. It pales in comparison to what you've done, redeeming humanity, those that would place their faith and trust in you, God, giving us eternal life being the first fruits of the resurrection. Lord, what more can we say? Thank you, Jesus. We just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and God's people pray. Amen. Amen. Please look with me at verse 14. And the word, that's logos or logos, again, we see there, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, why is that significant? Because if we go back up right in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. It's a declaration of his divinity, but now he's describing that word. Also, scripture calls Jesus truth. That word, that truth, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt there in the Greek is the word we would get in a Septuagint for the same word that would be used for tabernacle. Do you know what a tabernacle is? The idea of a tent? It's describing what Jesus did as he came eternal and he kind of came into a tent. This human tent. He tabernacled among us. And we, he's talking about being an eyewitness, the fact that Jesus Christ entered human history as we would understand it. And it says, and we beheld. He tells us why. Why this happened. For the beholding of his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness to him and cried out saying, this is he whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me and of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is at the bottom as the bosom, excuse me, of the Father, he has declared him. So what do we have happening here? Well, first of all, he's describing the incarnation. Did you ever wonder why? It was so that we could behold his glory, so that we could glorify God. That was the very purpose and salvation, certainly. We understand that is a key. He came to die, right? We know scripture teaches us that. But it says also that he was full of grace and truth, and needless to say, I mean, do we not get the idea that we beheld his glory in that part of this dwelling among us, that his life was an example for you and I? And part of being that example, he demonstrated perfect grace and perfect truth. Now, that's a big deal. That's not a balance, right? It's, it was on full display for everyone to see. Nobody could deny Jesus Christ lived a life without sin, a perfect life. But he wasn't legalistic either. He wasn't a God that turned around and just heaped legalism or a Judaizer or anything like that that would be said. No, he had such compassion and love, but his compassion and love did not turn around and outweigh the fact that God's word is truth. Now, I'm making a 
sort of a big deal about this because God makes a big deal about this because in the days we're living, there's a whole lot of people that would acknowledge the scriptures and acknowledge truth by definition. We'll go through that in a minute because we're going to talk about what is truth. But often they're willing to compromise truth in the hope or using love as the vehicle and reason for that. And that's a mishmash. I've used the example for many years and until somebody tells me, boy, I love the way that tastes. Uh, you all love chocolate, right? Many of you like, some of you might go, I don't love chocolate. I've never, never had a person that goes, you know, I just don't like chocolate. Just not into it. I'm sure I'm going to get calls. Like one person in the back just raised their hand. Of course. First service. So would you guys. No, I'm joking. No. One person to say, I love chocolate. Okay. Put, put, if you, caramel, if your thing isn't chocolate, whatever your thing is. Many of, you know, Thanksgiving's kind of, we like mashed potatoes, right? You know, maybe you like fried potatoes. Pick your potato carb. You get it. We love carbs. What if you took and put the both in a bowl and started mixing them together? Chocolate mashed potatoes. Does that sound appetizing? It doesn't sound appetizing to me. Somebody in here is like, yeah, that sounds really good. I don't know. I'm going to try it one day. But no, I don't think it's appetizing. And it doesn't mix well because it's a compromise. It's, it's diluted the purity of each one of those items individually and the fullness of them. As a matter of fact, we even understand that when we go out to eat or dinner, if you go to a fine restaurant, one of the things they'll bring you in between courses or meals or before your uh, dessert, they'll bring you often something to do what? To cleanse the palate. Why? So that you can taste purely what you're eating as not to compromise or to mix or to blend. There's sometimes where you want that because it, that explosion of flavor in your mouth is wonderful, right? Now that we're all hungry, um, what he's talking about here is the beauty and the perfection of grace and truth. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. But he says, John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he whom I've said, he who comes after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. He's, he's describing what we already read in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. He's describing his eternality here. But he's also declaring Jesus' deity. He's saying he's preferred before me. He is, he's God. He's God that way. And all this fullness, we, again, this complete um, desire and description of relationship here because he says the fullness we have all received. And he's talking about the apostles, the disciples, and you and I today. Have we not received all of Christ Jesus? He doesn't hold anything back from us. He's not, he's not going to go, you know, I'll give you a little bit. I'll get, no, no, no. We can come as close and press into that beautiful personal relationship with Jesus Christ as deep as we want. And the only one that govern, governs that is us. There is no shroud anymore. There is no more holy of holies where there's a curtain or something that blocks you and I from going into the holy of holies in the tabernacle that way. There's nothing like that anymore. That was torn because of Jesus Christ so that you and I could press into the most deep and intimate relationship possible with all of our being that's what he wants. Why else would he have torn it if he didn't expect or desire for us to press in that intimately? Dare I even say more intimate than a marriage, more intimate than anything else on this earth. 
should be our relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says, we've all received. And, and he describes what we are. So he says, grace, and the word for, for is always a reason word in scripture. For, why? Why? Grace for grace. Now, we wouldn't really say that in our, our English vernacular, you know. Well, why? Because I guess maybe we do sometimes. Why? Because I told you so, right? Maybe that's kind of what we might say, but that's not what this is actually saying in the Greek here. What the idea is, we, have, we are given... And this is grace, unmerited favor for unmerited favor. What does that mean? It means that it was poured out and given to all favor, undeserved, and that we would respond because once that unmerited favor is given, what's it do? It immediately humbles us that we would respond to Jesus and to that gift of salvation. That's why he says we're without excuse because he has already given the unmerited favor well before we even knew to receive it or not. Before we even maybe understood it, it was already given. It, it's, the, it's part of the agape love equation. It's unconditional. That's what God's love looks like. It's not based on what we do, how we speak, the things that we have. He desires all of our hearts. And he wants to give us all of his. It's grace for grace. Unmerited favor and love for unmerited favor and love's sake. I mean, is there anything more pure than that? I can't think of it. The reason is based on the fact that it is grace. And he says the law, and now he, he kind of brings us here to the law. He says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That word truth. Hold, hold your finger here. Turn to John chapter 14. And draw our attention to verse 6. Jesus clearly says here and, and, and describes himself, right? Many of us know this passage. We're familiar with it. He says, I am the way. That's why initially Christians, before they were called Christians in Antioch, it was called the way. That's where it came from. That's where this name of following Christ, the way. He was the way. The truth. Do you see that? He's the truth. That's a definite article. The truth. That means when you see Jesus Christ, he is the truth. He is the example and epitome of truth. You want a definition of truth? You look to Jesus. He is truth. There's nothing apart from truth within him. And he is life. Why is he life? Because every one of us on this earth, apart from the rapture and the harpazo, which is coming soon, I believe, we are going to die this physical death. But for those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will live for eternity with him. He declares that. He is life. There is no life apart from him. Well, what do you mean? You mean people that go to hell stop existing? No, no. But it's torment. That's not life in the way that Christ is using it. Yes, you are physically alive spiritually and you're in hell and you're being tormented. Absolutely. It's not annihilationism. I want to be very clear. But that's not the life that Christ has designed for the bride. A beautiful, perfect life. We, we haven't received our glorified bodies yet. It's, it's wonderful, but truth. Oh, 
as I was going through this, I, I was, Lord, how do I, how do I divine, you know, define truth? Not long, if you remember back in Luke, not long after being arrested and brought to the governor, Jesus made a simple statement, didn't he? And we just kind of actually read about it here. He said, I am the truth. It was very interesting what was going on with Pontius Pilate. I, I've not brought that out at that time when I was going through Luke, knowing that I was coming to John in this passage with you this morning, knowing I was going to share this with you. And I just wanted you to think about this. How often truth has been put on trial, especially in this postmodern world. Um, I believe it's very difficult with today's terms and understanding to even define truth or apprehend truth today. We even see examples in scripture where truth was put on trial. And this is what I meant. If you remember Jesus's trial, we talked about that. Do you remember if you were with us? If you weren't with us, I encourage you to go back and listen to the book of Luke. It's online. You can get the church app in the store, the Apple store. It's free. You just download it. You can listen to it. You can go up to the website. I encourage you to go back and listen to that passage again as I bring a rake through this in the context of Luke here this morning. Or excuse me, John this morning. Pardon me. Do you remember Annas? He was a corrupt former high priest, and he put truth on trial. You may say, how? Well, he broke numerous laws. I talked a little bit about that when we were going through Luke. He had an illegal trial for Jesus, and he held it at his house. He tried to induce self-accusations against the defendant. In this case, that was Jesus Christ. He even struck the defendant. He struck Jesus Christ, who had been convicted of nothing at the time. And after Annas, I'm going to call him the truth, because that's what the scriptures call Jesus, the truth, he was led to the reigning high priest. Do you remember who that was? It's Caiaphas. He was Annas' son-in-law. Before Caiaphas and the Jewish, Jewish Sanhedrin, that's the 70 plus one, many false witnesses came forward to speak against the truth. Yet nothing could be proved, no evidence of wrongdoing could be found, if you remember. Caiaphas broke no fewer than seven laws. I talked to you about five at the time I was going through the book of Luke, but first one was the trial was held in secret. You remember that? Uh, it was carried out at night against that was against the law. It was, involved bribery, right? It's, and the defendant had no one to present or to make a defense for him. Jesus Christ didn't have someone to defend him. The requirement of two or three witnesses to be present, that wasn't met. They used self-incriminating testimonies against the defendant and weren't allowed to do that. And they carried out the death penalty against the defendant the same day. That was not allowed either because they were to yield to maybe the grace of Christ moving on a, a particular situation there and maybe wanting to show grace. They didn't even allow that. All these actions were prohibited by Jewish law. And regardless, Caiaphas declared truth guilty. Because after all, Jesus says, we just read in John 14, 6, he's what? He's truth. Did you ever think about it like that? He actually rendered truth guilty. Jesus, who claimed to be God in the flesh, something that Caiaphas, if you remember, he called that what? Blasphemy. That's what he said. When morning came, the third trial of truth took place with the result of the Jewish Sanhedrin pronouncing that truth should die. Crucify him. Interesting. However, the Jewish council had no legal right to carry out the death penalty, so they were forced to bring truth to the Roman governor. At that time, a man named, and you all know his name, what was it? Pontius Pilate. 
Pilate was appointed by Tiberius in the fifth prefect of Judea, and he served in the capacity from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36, 10 years. He had the power over life and death, that man. He could reverse capital sentences passed by the Sanhedrin. Remember Barabbas? Let that murderer go. As the truth stood before Pilate, more lies were brought against him. He, his enemies said, we found this man, again, Luke 23, 2, I'm quoting, we found this man misleading our nation and forgetting, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying to himself that he himself is Christ, a king. This was a lie because we read in our Gospels, Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, that says, and we know that truth Jesus had told everyone to do what? Pay their taxes. And he never spoke of himself as a challenger to Caesar. Not one place in your scripture will you find that. After this, a very interesting conversation between truth and Pilate take place. Therefore, Pilate entered the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Am I? Your own nation and the, the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom, if you remember, he says, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting and so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. Speaking of incarnation. The very passage we're reading this morning, the incarnation. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world. To testify to the truth. That's what he says. To testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. Very important. Do you wonder why so much is happening today? Relativism, other people's believing of lies and everything like that? Because they're not hearing the Spirit of God, the truth. Without that, you will believe a lie. But he says very clear, and this is very important, everyone who is of the truth, everyone who is of Jesus Christ, hears my voice. And then remember what Pilate says in John chapter 18, verses 30 through 38. Since you're in the book of John, you can turn. What's he say? He has a really good question. A really good question. He says, what is truth? What is it? Now, I don't know about you. I find that very interesting. You know why? Because he was staring right at it. He saw it with his own two eyes. What is truth? Truth was what was staring right back at you. Did you ever think about that? The Bible scripture defines Jesus' truth. And he says, what is truth? Jesus could have said, me. But he just looked at him. And I believe with compassion. I believe with compassion that way. Well, if we're going to define truth here this morning, we, I think it's helpful to know what truth is not. And this is going to speak to our postmodern world and I'm sure we'll get some calls on this, and that's okay. Because if we can lead people to Jesus, and we can help debunk what truth is not, then people, people will become more curious to what truth really is. 
Truth is not simply whatever works. This is a philosophy of pragmatism, an ends versus the means type of approach. In reality, lies can appear to work, can't they? But they're still lies and they're not the truth. That's the first one. Truth is not simply what is coherent and understandable. A group, of, a group of people can get together and form a conspiracy based on a set of falsehood where they all agree to tell the same false story, but it does not make their presentation what? True. Truth is not what makes people feel good. Unfortunately, bad news can be what? True. Truth is not what the majority says. It's not a, a democratic item. 51% of a group can reach a wrong conclusion. Truth is not what is comprehensive. A lengthy, detailed presentation can still result in what? False conclusions. Truth is not defined by what's intended. Good intentions can still be wrong. Truth is not how we know. Truth is what we know. Truth is simply not what is believed. A lie can be believed, and it's still a lie. Truth is not what is publicly proved. A truth can be privately known, for example. Maybe the location of something in your house. You know where it is. Where, you ask one of the kids to put away the dishes. Where did you put this? Privately known. The Greek word... And in your Bibles, when you see truth, I'd like you to write this in your margin. I'd like you to look at this sometime. It's important for word studies. It's G225. That's something that you would look up in your strong concordance. All of you, I pray, have a strong concordance. If you don't, you can go to blueletterbible.org. It's free. It has lexicons. It has concordance. And I encourage you to study these words. Aletheia. Say it with me. Aletheia. Can you say that? Aletheia. Oh, now you're Greek experts, right? Aletheia, that's the word for truth here. You know what it literally means? It means to unhide. It means hiding nothing. That is the definition of truth. Jesus, the mystery revealed, unhidden. Hiding nothing. Making all things transparent as you see them. It conveys the thought that truth is always there, always open and available for all to see where nothing is being hidden or obscured. The Hebrew word for truth, that's H571 in your Bibles. H571. Look that up as a word study. Emeth. Say emeth with me. That means firmness. means consistency. And it means duration. Such a definition implies everlasting substance and something that can be relied upon. Truth can be relied upon. It can be trusted and Jesus Christ is what? Truth. Do you, do you see what he always wanted us to see? He always wanted us to understand this. But living in such a biblically illiterate generation where they have tried in this postmodern world to redefine truth with relativism, they've obscured Christ in so doing so. That is where the attack is. It's a spiritual problem and it's an attack on Jesus. And the enemy knows exactly what he's doing philosophically, right? There's some, well, pastor, wait a minute. Philosophically, there, there's simply three ways to define truth. I'll, I'll appeal to the philosophical. Truth is what corresponds to reality. That's very grounded. Truth is what, 
Truth is what matches the object in what you're describing. And as I like to say it, truth is telling it like it is, laying it down hot and not apologizing for it. Living in a postmodern world, philosophies of the day teach relativism, which says that truth is relative and there is no such thing as absolute truth. Have you heard that? You're, you're, you're living in a cave or a hermit somewhere if you've never heard somebody say that today. The disciples of uh, postmodernism affirm no particular truth, interestingly. The messenger of postmodernism was a, a German man. Some of you know him as Nietzsche. Nietzsche, if you prefer the German pronunciation, German man who described truth like this. What then is truth? As though it was not possibly to be, or possible to be defined. He says it's a mobile army of metaphors, metonyms, anthropomorphisms, truths are illusions, coins which have lost their picture and now matter only as a metal, no longer as coins. Ironically, Postmodernists hold coins in their hand that are now mere metal. And he affirms at least one absolute truth, that truth shall not be affirmed. In other words, it's circular logic. Let me just explain it. For you to declare there is no truth, you just made a declaration of what? An attempt to make a declaration of truth by circular logic and reasoning. It's, it's just a little too easy anymore in the days we're living. It really is. It's just become too easy that way. You see, the point is postmodernism and relativism, it's all self-defeating. It can't, stamp, it can't stand under its own claim. During the six trials of Jesus, the contrast between truth or righteousness and lies, it was unmistakable, wasn't it, as we just read it. We just looked at it. There stood Jesus, the truth, being judged by those whom every action was bathed in lies. The Jewish leaders broke nearly every law and designed to protect the defendant from wrongful conviction. There were steps and processes put in place to prevent a lie or the absence of truth. And they broke all of them because Jesus was and is truth. For this reason, God will send them it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and a little emphasis added here, he says he's going to send them a deluging influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Jesus said that. He inspired by Paul through the Holy Spirit. What does that tell us? Why do we see these things happening today? Because God is allowing it. He's giving them over to the debased mind. Because that's what they sought after. Now, there's nothing stopping them from repenting and turning and being saved and certainly receiving truth. But if you wonder why it's so polarized today and why there's such a, a lack of truth, it's because they're following their imaginations that they believe to be a reality. We normally would define that as a form of a... a imagination or a mental illness. That's really what's happening around you. That's why you're seeing things continue to go down so quickly because of the lack of truth. For the wrath of God is real from heaven, it says, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, against all ungodliness, all unrighteous men who what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. He says, who will render to each person according to his deeds those who, by perseverance and doing good, you, the body of Christ, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, who do not obey truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. One of my favorite passages, one of my wife's favorite passages in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6. Love. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account to the wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in what? Truth. It's always been there. God's always preserved this in the scriptures for us to see this. Truth. So what is truth? Well, the question Pontius Pilate asked centuries ago maybe needs to be rephrased more accurately or more completely today. The Roman governor's remark, what is truth, overlooks the fact that many things have truth, but only one thing can actually be the definite article, the truth. Truth has to originate from somewhere. I think we all need to yield to that this morning. The stark reality is that Pilate was looking, as I said, directly at the origin of truth on that morning almost 2,000 years ago. Not long before being arrested and brought to the governor, Jesus had made the simple statement, I am truth. Which was a rather incredible statement. How can a mere man be truth? He couldn't be unless he was more than a man. Unless he was actually what he claimed to be, the God-man. And the fact is, Jesus' claim was validated when he rose from the dead. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 teaches us that. Pilate and the Jewish leaders thought they were judging Christ when in reality, what was happening? They were the very ones being judged. Did you ever think about that? So many of us as Christians today think we're on the other side of that. We're being judged. No, you don't realize you, because Jesus Christ lives in you, and you are the temple of God, and you are walking in the righteousness of Christ. Truth lives within you. And you're bearing witness to the darkness. And you know who's being judged right then and there? The darkness, not the light. That's heavy. That's really heavy when you think about that. When you're bringing that to somebody and you're telling them about Jesus and they reject him. Do you realize that that particular item could be written in the book? That one day when they stand before God and say, what are you talking about? You're not a righteous God. I was a good person. I did these good things. I never denied you. Oh, do you not remember when Jim or Susie or Ray or Johnny told you about me, Jesus, and you willingly rejected me? And for that, you have no one to stand to defend you. Meanwhile, my son, my only begotten son, Jesus, Jesus, was willing to take your stripes, was willing to take your sins, your judgment, so that you could be reconciled to God. You could be without sin. 
He who had no sin became sin for us that we might become what? The righteousness of God. That's what you're rejecting if you reject Jesus Christ. That's what you're rejecting. Please understand that's what you're rejecting. You're rejecting truth. So the one they convicted will actually serve as their judge one day as he will for all those who are going to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as it says in Scripture. Uh, Pilate evidently never came to this knowledge of truth. Eusebius, who was a historian centuries later, tells us that the bishop of Caesarea records the fact that Pilate ultimately committed suicide sometime during the reign of Emperor Caligula. It's a very disturbing and horrific ending and a reminder for the entire earth that ignoring the truth always leads to undesired consequences. What did Jesus say again in John chapter 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to stop there this morning. I have the musicians come up. Next week, we'll move through verses 19, possibly finishing the rest of the chapter. I know some of you are saying, wow, we're getting in three or four or five verses. I, I've, I've made my heart, you know, I've talked to the Lord. We're not rushing through the book of John. There is so much theology in chapters one through four to understand the divinity and also the beautiful aspect of what he's trying to show us just like this morning how we could launch off into truth and it's written in so many different places that we would not be ignorant that we wouldn't be blinded by these things that we would know that there is absolute truth and that absolute truth can be found in Jesus Christ and my Bible tells me that this what you hold in your lap what you have before you this morning is God breathed this is not written by a man Yes, it was, in, it was physically, but it was inspired through the Holy Spirit, through God himself. And reading these very passages draw us to the very identity of Christ. And we begin to see and understand with eyes wide open, what is the truth? And I don't know about you, but that brings incredible comfort to me. Because no longer am I letting the attacks of the enemy family, friends, other people like that, crowd out that influence of what I know to be true in my heart. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He saves sinners, not perfect men and women. And his desire was to save all of humanity. But many do reject him. And those that reject him in unrighteousness will spend eternity separated from him, fully aware of their sin with torment and wrath. So much so that Jesus says it will be gnashing of teeth. Christianity is not a cult. Christianity isn't an ideology. Christianity is an absolute truth. And those that don't believe this truth walk in darkness. That's the fact. That's absolute. And that's what our scriptures teach. So do we have a hard and heavy heart for that? No. 
Instead, now that we understand, much like you would compassion for a child that's walking in error, you don't berate the child because of that. You have compassion for the child. You correct the child, and your, and your heart is to draw the child to the right behavior. Likewise, someone not walking with Jesus Christ, we don't have a hard heart to them. We don't look at what they're doing as a personal attack and suffering upon you and I. We look at it as though one who is blinded, who cannot see truth, but has been given over to a delusion or a debased mind, imagination, mentalness, whatever you want to call it. And it's our privilege and pleasure to reach that person and give them the hope that only comes from our Savior Jesus. Amen? Amen. Will you stand with me if you're able? And that's why the Great Commission is so important. Reach the lost, the destitute, the dying, the poor, the needy, the afflicted, and give them the hope, the hope that can never be squashed. Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to have in our hands and our hearts your truth. That, Lord, while all the lies and all the deception and all the wickedness and things that are going on today, Lord, uh, evil, and so much of the world, Lord, is chasing after it. It's, it's so disturbing, Lord. God, we know that we have a bigger part to play in these end times, in these end times, these end days, Lord. We're to be your hands and feet because we have you, Jesus Christ, and we have truth. And the scriptures, Lord, that we just read this morning, they're an encouragement to us. We're not crazy. You are who you said you are. You're God. You're the first fruits of the resurrection. Lord, every one of your prophecies is right in scripture. Never been proven wrong. Not a single word has been proven inaccurate in the Bible. Lord, you are trustworthy as we just even saw the definitions of the word truth. God, thank you for that. Thank you that you have put these breadcrumbs, these fingerprints all around us. That if we just want to see and desire, if we would just look and see, if we would just knock, the door would be opened. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. That the, that the scales fall from the eyes of this world and they would see, Lord, just two and a half weeks here to a time in this country, Lord, where you have given us the privilege to vote. And our voting, Lord, must align with the scripture because that is truth as you've told us. God, I desire and I know you want us to vote. I believe that. So show us, Lord. I think you've made it clear with those that are running, those that will stand in truth and those that are standing in lies, deception. God, I pray you would give us time for another revival. As we prayed on Wednesday, Lord, revive our hearts first. Lord, as we're going to go to this land today at 1230, Lord, I pray our voices would lift on high. We'd sing to you. I pray everybody would come out, Lord, no matter how busy they are, no matter what the weather is, Lord. Because you're the author of everything. We're simply giving you back what you've already given to us. And Lord, we're expecting. I don't know how it's all going to happen, God. None of us do. 
but we know you're going to go before us. You're going to build a building. You're going to save now. You're going to disciple. And that's exactly what you're doing here this morning. And we praise you for it and glorify your holy name for it. And we pray all this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord Jesus. And all God's people pray, amen.